Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning. My name's Nicole Aberdeen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this morning's session of the Writers' Festival, Sydney Writers' Festival, a conversation with two wonderful Australian writers, Tony Jordan and Patty O'Reilly, about their latest books. We'll be talking with Tony about her dinner with the Schnabels and Patty about her book, Other Houses. Let me start now by introducing you to our two wonderful writers. I'll start with Dr. Tony Jordan over on my far left. Tony has a Bachelor of Science and a PhD in Creative Arts. She's worked in many jobs, including as a molecular biologist, TAB operator, and door-to-door aluminium siding salesperson. It's true. In 2004, she quit her day job to study professional writing and editing. Since then, she's written five novels. Her debut, Edition, published in 2008, which became an international bestseller, won the Indie Award for Best Debut Fiction and was longlisted for the Miles Franklin. Nine Days was awarded Best Fiction at the 2012 Indie Awards and Our Tiny Useless Hearts in 2016 was longlisted for the prestigious International Dublin Literary Award. Her books have been published all over the world. Tony has been widely published here in newspapers and magazines and has taught creative writing at RMIT University in Melbourne and uh, in the Faber Academy, in fact, with Patty, who she's here with today. Dinner with the Schnabels was a Sydney Morning Herald pick of the week, and another reviewer said this about it. Dinner with the Schnabels is essentially a contemporary comic masterpiece. No one can write a domestic set piece as well as Jordan. Please make Tony welcome. Dr. Patty O'Reilly is the author of four novels, two collections of award-winning short stories, and a novella. Her books have also been published internationally. Her debut novel, The Factory, featured in several Best Book of the Year lists and was highly commended in the Premier's Literary Award, Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. The Fine Colour of Rust was shortlisted for the 2013 ASAL Gold Medal. The Wonders won the 2015 Norma K. Hemming Award and was nominated for the Kirkus Prize. Her short story collection, The End of the World, was shortlisted for the Queensland Premier's Literary Awards and individual stories won national and international prizes. She's also edited three illustrated anthologies, which I urge you to take a good look at, about dogs, fishing and holding, holden cards, <laughs> featuring contributions from well-known Australian writers. As I said, she's also taught at the Faber Writing Academy with Tony. And Charlotte Wood had this to say about the book we'll be talking about today, Other Houses. With the tension of a thriller, but the freshness and acuity of art, Other Houses is an authentic and surprising portrayal of a family under strain. Just to give you an idea about the structure, I'll be talking first of all to Tony about her book, and then to Patty about hers, and then we'll have a joint discussion exploring some common themes. Tony, my first question is always a boring one, but I think it's really great for audiences to hear in your own words what your book is about. Thank you, Nicole, and uh, hello, everyone. Um, thanks so much for coming along. Um, really, uh, it, it's about... Uh, I have a, a man here called Simon um, who has had a, a tough couple of years. He's, he's lost his business in the lockdowns 
and lost the family home. And when we meet him, he's living with his wife and two children in a small flat and adjusting to his rapid change in circumstances. Um, he, the Schnabels are his in-laws, his, his wife's family, and he's in a tough spot. He can't seem to get off the couch. He can't seem to overcome um, the troubles he's, he's been having. Um, but he has one job. The family have given him one job to renovate a friend's garden, and he has a week to do it. Um, and circumstances conspire against him and he conspires against himself. So kind of the question of the book is, can Simon uh, get his act together by Saturday to, to finish the garden? Tony, you wrote the book during lockdown and you said that it was partly inspired by two shows you were watching at the time. Yes. Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso, probably yes. familiar to lots of people here. <laughs> um, what was about those shows that inspired you to write this book? Well. Yes, I did. I wrote the book in 2020 and I found myself watching, I suppose as a lot of us did, a lot more television than I'd watched in the past and I found myself being drawn to these programs where um, everybody is essentially trying to do the right thing, failing often for a number of reasons about flawed people um, doing things that are well-intentioned but might not work out very well. And I kind of thought, um, these shows are making me feel joyful and I would like to see that in a book. I, I feel like um, so much of, of the kind of uh, books that we have at the moment are quite um, covering just one part of life, which is the difficult and serious part of life. And for me, life is a mix of the happy and the sad. So books are more effective if they if they also show that joyful part of life. And I, I kind of felt writing a happy book, it was my intention to write a happy book, and I've never done that before. Um, sit down with the idea of this is the vibe I'm going for. But I really felt that um, it, as a over the last couple of years, writing something that brings joy to people's lives is kind of an act of resistance and a, and a revolutionary act, and it's something I, I really wanted to try. And Tony, we should make it clear, you're from Melbourne and the book is set in Melbourne during yeah. the pandemic. And I wondered how important it was to you to set the novel during the pandemic. What did you want to explore well, by doing that? It's actually set now. It's set right now. So the beauty of that is I don't have to mention the pandemic at all. So there's, I don't have to say the smallest thing about it. Like there's just a mask in the bottom of someone's bag and, and the references can be light as anything because we all know what has happened. Um, it was a big decision because... It, you know, as a novelist, you wonder, how am I going to attack this? And my prediction is that everything that's going to be published in the next few years is all going to be historical fiction because it's such a difficult, you know, subject to get everybody's head around. Mm. I've spoken to a number of people and I've said, you know, what are you working on? And, and they've said, oh, something said in 1975, just to remove it off the table. Um, but I decided to face it head on. Um, I feel that um, we've been through such a significant thing that I wanted to capture it in time, but I wanted to frame it differently from, uh, from how you might normally frame it. Let's talk a little bit about Simon. You've given us a pretty good thumbnail sketch in that introduction. <laughs> he and Tansy have been married for 12 years. They've got two kids, Lockie and Mia. I'd like you just to talk a little bit about what was their life like before, so that the big catastrophe for them, 
was Simon as an architect, he had his own small business and he went bankrupt and the business went bust at the beginning of the pandemic. Yes. And we're seeing him about 18 months after that's happened. So I wanted you to give us a bit of a feeling. What was life like for Simon and Tansy before that happened and what's it like now? What changes have there been for them? Yeah, so Simon had his own business, felt very much in control of his world. They had a lovely house. Uh, the kids were in, you know, private schools. Like, everything was kind of going well for them. When we meet them at the beginning of the, of the book, they're renting a small flat, um, a two-bedroom flat with them and the two kids in it. Um, Simon is unemployed. Tansy has gone back to work. So pretty much everything has changed in the way they live. Um, and, you know, the idea of uh, how things really were. One of the things that I love about this book is Simon is kind of a dope. He's a, he's a bit of a dill. <laughs> and, and something I really enjoy in fiction is writing a character who is... He's not lying at any point. He's telling you exactly how he sees the world. But um, it's clear, I hope, to the reader that he's really not right in a lot of things. He's pretty wrong. And I love that gap between what the character thinks is going on and what the reader thinks is going on. So, it, you know, it's open to interpretation if this, how this change in their life has actually played out. Mm. How has he changed? And I'll give you a hint. There's one point later in the book where he bumps into somebody who knew him as he used to be when he was a big shot architect who's like, oh, Shiraz Simon, great to see you. <laughs> so tell us what he used to be like as compared to what he's like now. Yeah, I think he was a kind of a good time kind of uh, Shiraz Simon. He saw himself having a lot of friends and he saw himself kind of going out and uh, living a very, you know, conventionally successful life. Whether that was the case, again, um, I'm gonna, it's going to be up to the reader's interpretation of what's going on under the surface. I love writing these things that are, you know, a little bit, um, it, it could be read either way. So the character of Simon, for example, I've had people come up to me and say, oh my God, I, could, I can't stand him. I could hardly stand him by I had a, a woman say to me, her father had also read the book, and she said, it's it said over the course of a week. So she said, by Wednesday, when he hadn't done anything on the garden, I rang up my dad and I said, it's Wednesday. And my dad said, I know, let's get a ute, get some potting mix, let's do it ourselves. And she said, daddy's not a real person. And it's like, oh. So, you know, people are frustrated with him. But on the other hand, I've had people who have come up to me and said, he's clearly in the middle of a, a, a depressive episode. Like, mm. he's really struggling and nobody is really seeing how much he's struggling because he's so close to them. So I love that different interpretation. And, and this is something I just... I just no, have to tell on. you one quick little story because when my first book came out, I didn't realise this, this idea about the different interpretations that readers have about characters. My first book had a character called, called Seamus, and he was the main character's boyfriend. And uh, I remember being at a library outside of Adelaide talking to a, a group of women, and they were, that all went well, and then they, they came up for the books to be signed. And the first woman in, a, in the group came up and said, um, she sort of sighed, ah. <sighs> And she said, I can tell it's fiction because men that gorgeous as, as Seamus don't exist in real life. 
Oh. And I said to her, that's very nice, and ah, oh, and signed a book. And the very next woman who came up to me said, I liked everybody in the book except for that Seamus, what a controlling dickhead. <laughs> and, you know, I'd really never seen that, that the way that readers, it's such a joy because, you know, fiction is, as we all know, we're all readers of fiction, Fiction is half me and half you. Like, every book is different for every person and everybody brings something of themselves to their reading of it. So, you know, I, I love that idea about characters that walk that line that some people think he's this and some people think he's that and the discussions that come out of that. I'm interested to hear you say that because to me there are some pretty sort of objective facts that suggest he is in the middle of a depressive episode. He's avoiding sex with his wife who he adores. He is barely sleeping. He's still in his pyjamas at 10 o'clock. How does he feel about the situation that he has found himself in? Um, I think that uh, there's a lot... I think he feels a lot of shame about it. Um, I think that uh, it's people who are who have the illusion that they're in control. Like, mm. let's face it, in real the real world, none of us are really in control. Part, some part of our body could give out tomorrow, we could become injured or ill, or some kind of circumstances could befall us. Um, we have this illusion of control, and when things are going well, we think that's because of us. We think, oh, I'm so smart, I've got everything in control. And when, really, when circumstances change, you really get to see how little control you have over things. Really, the only control you have over the only thing you have control over is the stuff that goes on between your ears, and, and uh, Simon is not at the beginning. He's not really grasping it. He's he's uh, he's completely adrift on this changed circumstances. So tell us now a little bit about his gorgeous wife Tansy, who's the most beautiful character. Sorry, I've given a bit of it away then in that description, but they've been married for 12 years. Tell us a bit about her. What's she like and how does she deal with the change in their circumstances? It was important to me to write about a man in love with his wife because I, I, I feel like that's... I haven't read a lot of that in fiction about someone actually in love with his wife and in love with his kid, adoring his kids and and someone who really uh, feels very connected to that family. Um, she, I think, is, is trying to give him a bit of space to work it out because he's always... She's found him to be very trustworthy in the past and, and someone she can rely on. So I think she's probably let it go on for a bit too long because she's used to him being able to fix things and uh, you know maybe you know the argument is maybe she should be stepping in but because she hasn't it's very hard also when it's someone close to you because someone sometimes when someone further away from you is going through someone you can something you can see it with a more clear eye mm. We'll come back a little bit to that idea of the love of family because I think that's something that um, is very clear in your book as well, Patty. So we'll come back and we have the joint discussion. Um, but I, I certainly say it shines through very closely that this, very clearly, that this is a man deeply in love with his wife. Let's talk about her family now, the Schnabels of the title. So she's got two siblings, Kylie and Nick. How close are those three kids? They're very close. It's a very tight-knit family. And Simon doesn't really understand. He's an only child. So this connection between the siblings um, is, is kind of very... He, he, he likes it on one hand because he likes the idea that his children have other people that, that they can rely on, but he doesn't really understand it. Now, one of my favourite characters in the book is Gloria, the mother of... Um, of Tansy and of the other children. 
Tell us about Gloria. What's she like, and what? And what what's maybe go back a little bit to the family history of what? You know, what happened when the kids were young and and so, her relationship with them. Thank you. So Gloria raised the the kids on her own, um, pretty much after uh, their father left and and started another family, and um, so she is. Um, in Simon's view, the mother-in-law from hell. Um, but again, I'll leave that up to your, up to the reader's determination if that's really the case, because the, the prism through which Simon sees the world is not always the most accurate one. Um, I love the, the gap between how people present on the surface and what they actually do in, mm. um, in real life. And we, we were discussing earlier, Nicole um, meant, asked if, this book was inspired by my mother, um, who is a, also a very unique person. And my mother is very different from Gloria, but I did steal some of my mother's lines to give to Gloria. It's like a few throwaway lines. I, I want to ask you, can you give us some of those? Because there are so many, cracker, <laughs> so many cracker lines that Gloria delivers in this book. And I was wondering if you could identify, if you can remember any of the ones that you got from your mum that you could share, um, so to give people a bit of a taste of Gloria. Uh, certainly, my mother um, was fond of saying that uh, men shouldn't be allowed to vote. Um, they, because they're clearly too emotional um, to be involved in politics. You only have to go to a sporting match to see that. Um, and um, she also, there's another throw, just a throwaway line of glories that I took from my mother, which was, um, do you know where I can buy a burqa? Because my mother had this long-standing plan. Uh, she was, uh, toward the end of her life, a deeply feminist person, and she had this long-standing plan that she would, um, she's not an Islamic person, she's not a Muslim person, my mother, but she would dress up as one and then walk in some redneck part of town in the hope that someone would say something to her like, like go back to where you came from in, in her best imaginings, with which she would rip off the burqa in a dramatic act of fury and proceed with her descended from convict's language to say, don't you fucking tell women what to wear, you fucking fuck, like in this enormous <laughs> demonstrative kind of piece of performance theatre. Um, so that, <laughs> that was the plan that, that we kind of managed to talk her down from, but she was extremely enthusiastic about this kind of gorilla, you know, um, <laughs> shoving people around on the street. So I, I did take that little line from my mother as well. Tell us a bit about the relationship between Gloria and Simon. How does she treat him? Well, um, he's quite petrified of her, and um, those scenes are, are very fun to write. The only very pro fun to read too. The problem with the Gloria scenes is I really just couldn't shut her up. So I had to kind of strategically kind of contain her in that story. But um, yeah, some, some of those things I did take from my mother. All right, I'm going to pause with you there, Tony, and I'm going to turn now to Patty and we're going to talk about your fabulous book, Other Houses. I'm going to ask you the same opening question. Tell us in your own words what Other Houses is about. Other Houses is about Lily, essentially, who's a house cleaner, and her partner, Janks, who works in a factory. And when the book opens, we realise that Janks has disappeared and Lily is, is hunting for him because she can't believe he's just run off. She can't believe that. So he has disappeared and she's continuing her work 
as a house cleaner because, you know, life doesn't stop when a catastrophe happens. You still have to pay the rent. You still have to get out and work. And so she's continuing her job, searching for him, worrying. And in a parallel part of the narrative, we do find out what's happening to Jenks her partner. No spoilers. No spoilers. That's the hard thing. It's yeah. quite hard to talk about this without spoilers. But anyway, you do find mm. out, but you'll have to read mm. yourself to the end. Uh, and so, I mean, for me, the interesting thing was when I was writing this, I wrote a lot of scenes where the two cleaners, Lily and her cleaning partner, Shannon, go into houses and clean the houses. And when I was sending it off to the publisher, I thought, is anyone actually going <laughs> to read this? Is anyone actually going to read about this cleaner going into a whole lot of houses? And funnily enough, readers keep saying to me, I love the bit about where they're that. going into the houses. And I feel a bit like a voyeur mm. because it is that, that close observation that cleaners have when they go into your house. They know so much about you. And they're, you know... Lily and Shannon are not, you know, they're not harsh or horrible people. They're very kind people. But their observations and their talk about the houses can sometimes be a little funny because people are funny and their habits are often quite funny. And I even descended at one point into talking about turds because <laughs> that is part of the life of a cleaner. It's not a large part. So there's, a, there's that tension in the story between the fact that you have to keep going when something terrible has happened and trying to cope with the shocking thing that has happened to you. And the crisis, of course, is that without Jenks's income, mm. she's not going to be able to afford to live where she lives anymore. They've moved there to try and help their daughter get out of a sticky situation where she was hanging around with a whole lot of delinquents. So they've moved house, they're paying just at the top of what they can afford to get her out of that situation. And without his wage, with him gone, she's not going to be able to stay there. Mm. So there's a certain undercurrent of panic. What is she going to do? What is she going to do? And we're going to unpack some of those things that you've talked about in a bit more detail. Let's Let's wind back a little bit and talk. Tell us a bit about this family. Tell us about Lily and Jenks. Who are they? What do we know about them? How long have they been together? What's, what's a bit of background about them? Okay, so they, um, they got together. Jenks used to have an addiction problem and uh, he, he, he would watch Lily, who worked at the local supermarket, walking by and you know, he fell in love with her and just her walk and her, the, the way that her uniform didn't quite fit properly, but, you know, and so he fell in love with her and she too had her eye on him and she's, she was, I am never going out with a junkie, ever. A very sensible decision and she didn't, but he actually got clean. He got clean and they, they had a little romance, they got together and he moved in, and her daughter was like a wild animal. 
mm. at this point. So how old was the daughter? They'd been together, and by the time we meet them, they'd been together, I think, for four years. Yeah. I think Julie, we'll come to her in a moment too. So She's about 15 now, so was she yeah, about 11 15, when he 16, moved in? that's right, 11, 12 when he moved in. She's a wild animal. She's, mm. She spits at him. He thinks she's, it's like she's been raised by cats. She hisses. She calls um, him a pedo. Calls him a pedo. <laughs> And uh, the school says, oh, we're going to have to report that, you know. You know, you've got to report it when someone um, accuses someone of being a pedophile. And she says, well, we, we used to call... Um, Julie also called the school principal the principal Kitty Fiddler, so are you going to report him too? <laughs> she really was wild. And, and his sort of calm, mm. calmness in the house and... Um, also the fact that she's moved school, she's moved out, she's, she calms down. And by the time we meet her, even though a couple of readers have said she's a horror show because mm. she's a teenager, you know? She's a teenager. She's a teenager. Yeah. But yeah, she's, she's come through it and she's going to be a good kid. She's going to be a good adult. And it's, it's a lot to do with Jenks having moved in mm. and with the steadiness of this partnership of Lily and Jenks, who are holding it together. Mm. They're a tight unit, the three of them, aren't they? And that's yeah. another thing. When, he's, when he goes missing, it's, she's lost her love, her partner. She's lost, the, as you say, the second wage is going to enable them to stay where they are, and we'll come back to that. But she's also lost that real... Um, the co-parent. He's a, he's a really wonderful co-parent, and that's that right. comes through very clearly. All right, let's get to the cleaning. So, as you say, she works with her friend, Shannon... And I want to look at it from both angles. First of all, can you tell us a bit about how they are treated by their clients? And then I want you to tell us how does Lily feel about the clients? So the, the, the first part, how do the clients treat them? Well, you know, cleaners, cleaners hold a special position. They're not servants. They come in. The work they do is really valuable. Mm. And... It, I don't know, whether you've cleaned the house yourself or whether you've had a cleaner clean it for you, there is nothing better than coming home and opening the door to a gloriously clean house, is there? No. It's, it's just beautiful. So they're appreciated. Yeah. They are appreciated for this incredible work they do. But, you know, there's always that little thing of people thinking, what if they've stolen something? What if they've broken something? And... Should I be paying this much? And, you know, mm. what if they notice the things that I've got stuffed under the bed? And who will they tell? The so, animal masks, I think you mentioned <laughs> at one point. So, yeah, there's a, it's a complicated relationship where it's not like a gardener who works outside your house. It's someone who comes into your house, into a very intimate space, the house cleaner. And so... This, this complex relationship that people have. And, and, of course, not everyone's the same. Some people just don't want to see the cleaner and they kind of bolt out of the house at 10 a.m. and come back when it's done. Some people do a fairly thorough clean of the house before the cleaner even <laughs> arrives. And some people follow the cleaner around, doing a little bit of this on the architrave <laughs> to see if there's any dust. So within the book, there are people who have very varying attitudes towards Lily and Shannon. But I think Lily, 
she accepts it. I mean, she loves it much better than working in a supermarket. There's a certain level of independence in being a cleaner. And Lily and Shannon work together and, and work together with, I think, a pretty wry sense of humour. Ah, oh, absolutely. That, the dialogue between them absolutely crackles. And they, I think, you know, it's that kind of dialogue that, to me, feels very Australian. Mm. You know when you go overseas and, you, and you, you meet some other Australian, there's this sudden connection in the sense of humour? I think it's, it's that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, a little bit uh, old-fashioned perhaps, but, yeah, very right. And so they, they kind of work their way through it. They laugh. And they give names. They just, just to give some of the examples. They give names. That we, um, we won't spoil the story, but they, they give hilarious descriptions of the different houses, but they've all got different funny names. Yeah, well, you know, there's the House of Doom and there's the Weber House and they're not talking about a barbecue, they're talking about spider webs. The House of Hands, The I House liked. of Hands where, where some toddlers keep leaving their handprints on, on all the chrome that's all around the house. They spend a whole lot of time cleaning toddler handprints off the chrome and the one the one that Lily really loves, the house she really loves, she's christened the House of Light, even though she has to clean ceiling to floor windows. She, she still loves it. Yeah. Patty, I know you've written about this. That you've... Oh, Sydney. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, can you still hear us? Do we need to lift our voices? Um, this is what we've been hearing about in Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I know you've worked as a cleaner yourself. You've written an article in The Guardian about that. And that is no doubt what enables you to write with such um, perspicacity about the experience of being a cleaner and with such humour. What I was wondering is, what do you learn about people by cleaning their houses? Probably um, less than people are paranoid about. <laughs> but you do, I mean, you, the main thing that you learn when you're a cleaner is that everybody lives a different way. And it's like the first time when, you, when you're little and the first time someone invites you around to their house for a play date or you go over and, you know, have a sleepover and you think, whoa, this isn't how we do this. This isn't how we eat dinner, even. And, you know, this isn't what our beds look like. Everything is completely different. And you start to realise the incredible variety, but also the, the, the consistency of what is a home, I think, you know, that a home has, you know, people who care both about, um, I mean, of course, about each other and, of course, about, you know, what they're feeding each other and, you know, whether they're messy or whether they're super tidy, it doesn't matter. You can feel that homeliness. And I think also you can feel when that's starting to break down. Mm. Like you really do get a sense of when a home is losing its happiness, which is really sad. Mm. But, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You just keep on cleaning and hope that they work it out. Because, you know, sometimes that will pass and people will get over that. And then sometimes you get there and one of them's moved out. One of the parents has moved out, which is sad. But you can feel it. You can feel it in the house. A house holds a lot of emotion. Mm. Patty, Lily Jenks and Lily's daughter, Julie, live, as we see, pretty 
clearly, a very precarious existence. They're both working incredibly hard. Lily's working as a cleaner. Jenks is working in the, in the factory. But as you say, it only takes one thing to go wrong for him to go missing before Lily and Julie are really pushed to the brink. At one point she says, I'm not in a war, but I feel as if I am, as if I've always been a low-level war that flares up after every hopeful ceasefire. So people like this have done nothing wrong. They're hard workers, they love their families. How do people like Lily and Jenks get ahead? You know that saying that somebody once said, if you have a go, you'll get a go? So that's bullshit. That is complete and utter bullshit. A lot of people are having a go and they've never got a go. And over the last, I don't know, how, how many years has it been? Over the last number of years, I've seen an incredible amount of money flowing out of the government to businesses, to organisations and to people who do not need that money. Meantime, other people are sinking lower and lower with their wages just fading away, their jobs disappearing. I know this bullshit about the unemployment rate. If you work one hour a week, you're considered employed. And, you know, there's, we've reached a point, I think, where the divide is so huge between the haves and the have-nots that we're becoming a, a, a society that is shameful. And uh, excuse me getting on my soapbox, but tomorrow we can help to change that, and I hope that you will. One thing that drives Lily and Jenks, both of them, is this fierce desire to give Lily's daughter Julie a better life than either of them have had, to give her more opportunities. And one major thing they do, and they've done it before we meet them, is they move from where they're living to a more gentrified, more fancy, posh suburb, North Coast. And I just want you to tell us a little bit about how hard it is for them to fit in there and what they do to try. Like, they, they just give it their best shot, don't they? Yeah, they give it their best shot. And they're a little bit embarrassed about the, um, the amount of pizza that they eat and, um, you know, beers at night after work. And so rather than put them in their own bins, they drive to the local shopping centre to get rid of the pizza boxes and the beer cans. So the neighbours don't see them. So the neighbours don't see. But as she does point out at one, at one time, there's a company director down the road who gets on the grog sometimes at night and shouts the house down. But it's not going to be acceptable for her to do that until she's a company director. So, yeah, she, they, they do have those little things. And they've, they've thrown out all of their jeans that have holes in them. And then suddenly they realise that in the clothes catalogues, they've got all these jeans that are deliberately ripped. And they think, oh, my God, we could have made a fortune. So all those little things, the little things that you do when you move into another suburb, you know, and, and suburbs, it's the same in Sydney, it's the same in Melbourne, Brisbane, everywhere. Like, a suburb is a culture, and when you move suburbs, it's like you've moved into an entire new culture, whether you've moved from, I don't know, Redfern to Marrickville, I don't know, is that different? 
Redfern to Parramatta. There's nuances, I guess, yeah. out there. Or whether you've moved from, in, in Melbourne, you've moved from Broadie to Northcote. You know, people are the same, but uh, lifestyles are different. Thoughts are different. The, the way that people live is different. And so you, you do make these little adjustments to try and fit in. And, and they do their best. They keep saying there's all... I had lists of quotes. I won't bore you with them, but of them just saying over and over they want to give her a better life, they want to give her a chance at the education that they didn't have. That they didn't have. So. And it was important to you to write about that, wasn't it? That everybody, whatever, whatever sort of life they're leading, yep. everybody has that desire for their kids to give them a better life if possible than what they've had themselves. They absolutely do, whether it's migrants More moving country to try and give their kids a better life or whether it's you know someone moving a suburb to try and get their kid into a better school or whether it's you know people giving up stuff so that they can give their children the clothes mm. that they think will help them in the mm. milieu they're in everyone does this for their kids and it's it's just whether you can keep doing it or whether something just one thing can mm. throw you off and you lose that that momentum that you had of climbing the ladder slowly, slowly, slowly. And I think, I mean, this is a sort of probably a stretched analogy, but if you think of the ladder, mm. the rungs at the top are very close together. They're easy to climb. The lower down you get, the, the further apart the rungs are. And if you miss one, you slide a long way down. And it's very, very hard to climb back up to that next rung. Mm. So, you know, I think... <clears throat> Everyone does do that for their kids. And I did wanna, I did wanna say that. And I think a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of crap goes on in people talking about, you know, unemployed people or whatever, not trying hard enough or not wanting a job or not, no ambition. And I think that is rubbish. They have ambition, they have ambition for their kids. It's just whether you can get there. It's whether you can get there. And some people are having a lot of trouble right at the moment. Sorry, I wasn't going to stop you. I just, there was something that I read that you said on this point that really rang true, where you were talking about how people who, um, you know, are less fortunate, who have less money, when they turn up for the job interviews, they're not going to be as well-dressed. They're not going to have had their hair done. And you make a particular point, which um, you reference in the book, about teeth. Mm. Just tell us about that and how that then immediately they're at a disadvantage when they're applying for jobs because they don't look as polished. Just tell us about the teeth. Because well, we have, Lily has, a, has an issue with yeah, her teeth. Yeah, so Lily has that, uh, you know, um, teeth in Australia are about class now. If you can afford the orthodontist or you can't for your kids. And um, so Lily, of course, Lily's got terrible teeth and she's never been able to fix them. She's got, you know, everything wrong. She's got dent caries as well as crooked teeth. And she smiles with a closed mouth smile. And mm. people do that. And so, you know, class and teeth, bizarrely, go together here in Australia now, which is wrong. It should be on Medicare, obviously. Everyone has teeth. <laughs> it should be on Medicare. What? How is that even a question? But it's not. And so, you know, in the books, um, well, in an article I, I was just talking about, if you're turning up to a job interview, your clothes are from Target, they often don't fit that well, 
you, your teeth have never had any kind of orthodontic work. They might be as clean as you can make them. You might be very skilled, very articulate, but the person sitting next to you who's well-groomed, who's got the right accent, who's got the teeth that, you know, the perfect smile, they're at such an advantage, such an advantage in a job interview. So it kind of works on every level that, that um, push against people who started off with disadvantage it follows them at every point. So let's move to now a joint discussion. It seems to me there are quite a few. Although these books are very different, Tony, yours is, um, and I don't mean it in a pejorative way, it's lighter, it's, it's a happier, I suppose, lighter book in some ways. You still deal with the same themes. In both of these books, you've got people, you've got families who are under intense pressure due to circumstances beyond their control. Simon lost his job and lost his business because of the pandemic. He tried to get another job, he wasn't able to. His wife's working as hard as she can. We've just talked, obviously, about the circumstances of Tansy and Jenks, and I was wondering, how difficult were these stories to tell? Tony? Um, I think that overcoming adversity is a great kind of plot for a book. The difficulty in my case was I was deliberately going with a kind of a low stakes kind of story. So it's, it's set over six days and the question is, can this guy finish a garden? This is a pretty low stakes <laughs> kind of story. Um, so I, I was trying to think of how I could imbue it with a, a bit more kind of resonance and energy and um, in, I know there are a few writers here, but in thrillers, um, you often get this concept called a ticking clock, which is a kind of a writerly technique where you, you set the events that are happening with a kind of a deadline, a, a countdown, um, and then you've got to, you know, whatever, by the end, diffuse the nuclear bomb or something. So I thought, what if I take this idea of doing a garden or not, and, and try and Im imbue that same nuclear device energy. So I've got the same kind of countdown as the days go on, and, and, and Simon does not mm. sort of get his act together to see if, it, if I could keep that tension up. Yeah. So it was a really fun experiment well, to you do. you do that very well, because <laughs> each, time he, each time he fobs it off or is busy or doesn't get there, you, you, there's an internal cringe. <laughs> like, that's right. Just do, just do that garden. Simon. I can understand the person who said that to you, like, we'll just go and do it ourselves. <laughs> um, Patty, how difficult did you find it to write this story? Well, I'd been writing it for some time, and then pandemic, and I was watching TV one night, and I watched a show where a whole lot of people were lining up for food bank, you know, where they give out food. And these were people who... They were, they were shocked that they were in the line for food bank. This is something they never imagined would happen to them. And that shock that I saw on their faces actually kind of mm. set me on fire. Mm. And I, I thought, I've got to finish this book. I've got to finish it. This is the time. And turns out it was the time. <laughs> it was the time. And this is, um, you know, on the, book show, on the bookshelf, um, Cassie McCulloch called this the, the perfect 
cost of living pre-election novel. <laughs> she said she probably doesn't realise she'd written it because, of course, you know, I wrote it before any election was even going to be called. But, um, yeah, I, that's what set me off. I was already mm. writing it. I already loved all of my characters. I always love all of my characters, even when they're behaving really badly. Not that many do, but uh, in this book, oh, there are a couple of really bad ones, actually. Yeah. There are some bad Not guys. the main <laughs> characters. Not the... <laughs> yeah, so, but I really... I needed to get this done. I needed to get this done. So there's a couple of other sort of similar tacks I thought you both took. The, one other theme or idea was this concept of the value of honest hard work. Mm. So in your book, um, Tony, we have Simon and, you know, no spoilers here, here. We won't give away, obviously, too much, but let's just say he eventually does get down to the gardening, and he loves it. And he talks at some stage, he says, that, oh, that's, there's something transcendental about gardening. He loves getting his hands dirty and getting the physical ache. And then, of course, in your book, Patty, we have Lily, who is doing this cleaning, which is so physically demanding, but it is honest, decent, hard work yes. in the same way as Janks's work in a factory, making dips. So could you both have a talk about the dignity to be found in hard work? Tony. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I am a, a, a proponent of, of, of work and hard work. I, I, I'm from a long line of single mothers who all worked full-time and worked very hard. Um, it, the question is not for me about uh, how important it is. It's very important. But what part of our identity it occupies. I, I would uh, my guess is that we don't consider hard work important enough in terms of the way it, um, the actual motions of it, but we consider the type of work too important mm. in terms of how it mm. forms ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, feeling productive and feeling confident go together to me. Mm. But the, the various gradi graduations of, of what that work entails is to me overemphasized mm. when the important thing is to achieve whatever the thing mm. is and the thing doesn't really matter. Mm. Patty, your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, that's very true, I think. And I, I also think that if you've had a time in your life where you weren't working or you couldn't get a job or you've been a junkie, I suspect none of you have, but <laughs> you never know. It's, it's a crowd. Um, if you've had that and then you get a job, and it might be the simplest factory, you know, dip-making job, the fact that you're getting paid to do an honest day's work is, is deeply satisfying. Mm. And, you know, I think that whole idea that people want to be unemployed... No one wants to be unemployed, no. do they, really? No. It's much better to do something where at the end of the day you think, yeah, I did that, I did it. And, and like you say, Tony, it, it's not whether you're, you know, a, a government minister or a public servant or picking up the garbage or cleaning houses. It's whether at the end of the day you think, yep, I did a, I did a good job. Mm. I did a good job on that. Exactly. And that is huge, but also it would be really great if you got paid properly for it. <laughs> Let's talk finally, before we open to questions, about the use of humour in both of your books and how important it is to you. Tony, you said somewhere that the use of humour builds resilience and helps with anxiety. 
can't deny there's, that. There's yeah. data on this. We know yeah. this for a fact, that, that humour, uh, people who uh, read humour and watch humour have more resilience and can really um, begin to engage with life more because my, you know, this is another thing that, that Patty and I share, a, a slight similar worldview. There's lots of forces out there who want you to be miserable. They, it, people make money off you being miserable because if you're miserable, then you've got to buy a new lipstick or a new car or something to cheer yourself up. Or if you start to think that everything's hopeless, then you disengage from the political process. So there's an enormous amount of vested interests in keeping everybody just a little bit depressed. And um, I mean, we of course hope that you will buy our books, but if you don't have the money to buy books, you can go to the library mm -hmm. and get them for nothing. Mm -hmm. So you have the power to change your own state without costing you a dollar. And this is an enormous, an enormous tool that everyone has at their disposal for, um, for sort of cutting this connection between what you buy and how you feel. And mm. I can't think of anything more important than that. Mm. That's right. Thank you. That's right. And Patty, there's, your Lily has so much humour, the way she, just the, and she and Shannon, the banter between them, the humour there, and the humour about the houses and the cleaning up the turds and the, all of it. So how important is it to you to inject humour into your, well, certainly into this book? I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help it. Humour manages to creep into nearly everything I write, and I think that's partly because uh, humour creeps into everything I say also. But it's, uh, it's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a dopamine rush when you have a laugh, mm. and when things are hard, I... Someone cutting through that hardness, not, not denying it, not saying it doesn't exist, not, not um, pushing it out of the way, but just to, to take that moment and make a little joke, to lift a spirit. There's nothing like it. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't take anything away, but I think resilience is a really good word, Tony. It gives you that resilience to keep going and to see, you know, it, there's light and dark, light and dark, and... You know, we, we can make the light. We can make the light for ourselves with a, just a little bit of humour. Oh, what a lovely note to end on. Can I ask all of you now to have a think about any questions that you'd like to ask these two fantastic writers? If you'd like to come down the side aisles and come up to the microphones, I think. Yeah, thank you. Hello, ladies. Hello, um, hello. You're both very funny, and I'm <laughs> delighted to hear you both doctors. Um, this question's probably more for Paddy, but I'd be delighted if you answered it as well, Tony. I find with your humour, and I've been reading your short stories lately, and uh, one was an unsavoury one with um, a door-to-door -door salesman, and uh, I can't remember the name of it, you'll know. And I was just laughing out loud because the humour was so um, streetwise gritty, I suppose I'd describe it as, and a bit of bogan thrown in and I just thought where does she get this from what sort of life has she, has she had <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for that question um, yeah I'm, I feel like I'm made up of a number of different people so I'm 10% bogan 
20% teenage boy. <laughs> and it just goes on and on. And I think that's part of the way that we make characters, mm. isn't it? Yes. So um, I also, in typical, you know, old school fashion, I have done 100,000 jobs of different kinds, you know, from cleaning to, to office admin to, you know, pretty, to being a lecturer, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, blah. and I can't take, resist taking the opportunity to say that is the story of most writers, mm -hmm. because in Australia, the average income for a writer is $12,000. Yeah, yeah. So just bear all of that in mind when you're voting tomorrow as well. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why these people have done so many jobs, and that's why most writers do so many jobs, to feed their writing habit. <laughs> yes, it's true. So and yes, nourish us. And all of those jobs and all of those environments that I've been in have fed into my sense of humour. So you know, I feel very comfortable. There's, I've got, also got quite a bit of um, cranky old man. <laughs> and you, you know that sort of cranky old man humour? I really like that one too. So all of those milieus that I have been and worked in and lived in, have, I've absorbed them all and I just love humour of every level. <laughs> I love it all from slapstick to, to high fast. I love it all. And I feel like one of the things that we can do as writers is channel the correct kind of humour the correct kind of humour for the story that we're writing and for the environment and the people that we're writing it for. And, and that's, you know, it's from that essential writer's skill of listening. Listening, listening. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, Tony, I know that you're a pantser when you yeah, write. I'm a pantser. <laughs> um, and Patty, I don't know if... Pantser. Yeah. Pantser. yeah. I just wanted to know to what extent your stories were pantsed. Okay, so just can you. You, can you just explain what yes. that means? Yes. Some people might Thank not have heard that expression. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that question. Oh, so the question was that Tony has said quite a few times that she's what's called a pantser. And the question was, did you pants it when you wrote this? Tony's going to explain what that means and then answer the question. So often in writing circles, we divide ourselves into two different camps of, of novelists, where we have people who are planners looking at you, Kate Forsyth in the front row, <laughs> people who know, who plan out their novel in advance, you know, work out what, what chapters will contain and, and what is going to happen all the way through before they start writing. And others like us who we call ourselves pantsers because we do it by the seat of our pants. <laughs> so we just start at the beginning and, um, and, and keep writing and see what comes up. Um, I cannot work any other way. So I, got, I didn't realise what the ending would be until I'm about three quarters of the way through. <laughs> Um, th this is this is not, you know, uncommon even no. among very famous writers. I have a friend who's a very famous crime writer, and I said to him once, um, you know, how's the new novel coming? And he said, great, but I'm up to the second last page, and I don't know who done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, th this is how a lot of us work, and and part of the it's part of the joy for me because I I never have days where I don't want to do it or procrastination or writer's block because I want to know what happens. <laughs> so I get to sit down every day and, and make it up and see what happens. Yeah, I have a little story about that too. So I wrote a book called The Fine Colour of Rust and then like years later, I woke up one morning and I'd had a dream and in the dream was plotted out a sequel. 
an entire sequel to this thing. It had the characters, it had a plot, it had a subplot, and I thought, oh my God, this has never happened to me before. This is brilliant. And I wrote it all down, and then I thought, oh, that's done. <laughs> so did you all I did was write the plan. Because it's boring. I wrote right? the plan, and I thought... <laughs> but you didn't write the novel. No, I didn't because write the novel. Because it's done, right? Because I've the plan. It's boring now. <laughs> So if anyone needs a novel to write, <laughs> I have a plan for you. Does anyone else have any questions? But, you so, know, oh, just, sorry, while, just while we, we wait and see, I, this is something I always say to young and emerging writers and young and emerging creatives of every type, because so often people say to me, you know, I can't begin this. I've got an idea for a project, but I think I need to know what it's like in Paris so I can't start or I feel like I don't know enough about this character so I can't begin and I'm forever telling people that once you start that has a kind of energy of its own and that attracts more ideas and you figure things out as you as you go along in the process and once you begin a creative project you can get the wind behind you and there's you'll make mistakes and then you have to backtrack and then you go this way and it's the most annoying um, backwards and forwards delightful process and it's part of the reason why it's so seductive yeah some people don't have as happy a time as that <laughs> some of us have a little more misery in the writing process but yeah essentially yeah. all right thank you so much tony and patty for that conversation Thanks. thank you for all that you said thank you for thank thank you. your wonderful book thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.